In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we read the inspired apostles' summary of the gospel. You know the gospel that was delivered, received, the gospel whereby they would be saved. Well, in that inspired account in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that the gospel includes the truths that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It also includes the fact that he rose again the third day. Well, that much we expect. He died and he rose again. But Paul, in that inspired account, includes in his statement the facts of the gospel and that he was buried. Now, perhaps you have thought to yourself, this is just a necessary link between the death and resurrection. Well, of course, if he died and he rose again, then the burial is simply an incidental event in history. Well, I don't believe we should think that at all. We read of Mark's treatment of it in these verses, but clearly Paul sees it as more than an event of history. Oh, it is that. We've got the events, the summary here in Mark chapter 15. But undoubtedly, Paul sees its significance as more than simply an event that took place in the history of Jesus. The Roman custom, if we think of the Romans at this time, was to let the bodies of those crucified to rot on the cross, be devoured by birds. But as the Roman occupation of Judea, the Jerusalem region, well, in that occupation, well, then over time they began to crucify Jews. And in so doing, they accommodated their practice so that the Jewish people were not permitted to hang upon the tree. We have that in Deuteronomy chapter 21. The word says, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. And thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. So we, we have the idea the Jewish Custom was, well, you cannot have a person hanging upon the tree overnight. And so you read the events. If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 19, and you'll see, you'll see the events in John 19. And it gives some context to these events. Verse number 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation. Here's the, here's the important part, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. So they, they beseech Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. And so the desire is that they would expedite the death of the criminal in such a way as their burial would, would happen before the close of the day. And in this case, before the Sabbath day, they did not want the bodies to remain upon the cross. Now, whilst there was accommodation of the Romans for this custom, humanly speaking, the Lord's body could have been subject to the most degrading treatment. Could have been taken down, subject to some profanation, and then thrown in a public grave with those executed with him. But the Lord God, by an extraordinary providence, had so prepared events to protect the Lord from the public humiliation of such a burial. See, what you see in Mark's gospel is you see, you see a remarkable change in the note of the narrative. Up to the death of Christ, you've seen nothing but the Lord's humiliation, his degradation. He's, he's being mocked. He's being scorned. All, of, all the things that we know so very well regarding the crucifixion of Christ. But then you get to verse number 46. And you read about Joseph's treatment of the Lord with fine linen and with dignity. 
and laying him in a newly hewn tomb. Condemnation and the agonies are over. After all, did not the Lord say, it is finished? Is it not the state, the fact that he has, he has borne our sins on his body to the tree? And now the work is completed. He has done the work the Father required of him. And now humiliation gives way to exaltation. The burial in many ways serves as a hinge between the humiliation of our Saviour and his subsequent exaltation. And that's, that hinge, the importance of the burial, should be seen in that light. And so, in so doing, when we consider the burial of our Saviour, I want to do it in, in two ways. I want to show you the importance of the Lord's burial in light of what the Lord did in Joseph. Because when you see the events surrounding the man Joseph, you see the Lord is doing a work to enable the burial to take place as it does. And then, as we close, we'll, we'll look at some of the, the theology. The history of Joseph and then the theology of the Lord's burial. And I, I trust we'll see the significance of those things coming together. So first of all then, let's think about this history. And historically, the burial of our Lord gives us an illustration of sacrificial service. Joseph, he's the figure prominent in Mark's account, verse number 43, Joseph of Arimathea. We know undoubtedly there were servants involved. We understand also that Nicodemus was involved from the other Gospels. But here, here in Mark's Gospel, it is Joseph that is given the prominent role. He is the one who approaches Pilate, and he is the one who instigates the various procedures. And when you think of Joseph, let me first of all talk a little bit about his biography. We get some details regarding Joseph in the biblical narratives. We know from verse number 43, he was from Arimathea. Luke tells us in Luke 23, 51, that was the city of the Jews. But more than that, we know that Luke was a member, or we know that Joseph, sorry, was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin council. Turn across to Luke 23 and just see this in your own Bibles. Luke 23 and the verse number 51. Where again, we read if Joseph here. Uh, verse 50, and behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. Here we're getting a, a bit of detail regarding this man, Joseph. Now, we should take some time to think about the words not consented in verse number 51. What does that mean? Well, it seems likely that, the Lord, or that, that Joseph was spared from having to vote regarding the death of Jesus. Not consented. The sense is he had not voted. Uh, likely is he was absent from that time. I wonder, did the Lord spare him? We know, we'll see later on here very shortly, that he was a, a believer in Jesus, but secretly because of the Jews. And so did the Lord in some way graciously prevent Joseph from having to be present uh, the voting regarding the Saviour. Hard to be certain in those things, uh, but it, it seems to be the case that certainly he was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin council. We know also, of course, from uh, Mark's gospel here, he was an honourable man. In the sense is, he was respected by the other rulers. This is a, 
uh, we might use the term a good upstanding citizen respectable and respected you might say oh that's all very interesting but the significance is this he is the last person expected to take a despised criminal off the cross the background here is important it is a remarkable work of god's providence that he'd prepare such a man at such a time to do the work required for his son what was it that made this work possible well we've noted his biography what about his belief now there are several statements regarding his belief in the the various narratives john 19 tells us that he was a disciple of jesus but secretly for fear of the jews that's john 19:38. calling him a disciple of jesus i believe denotes his genuine discipleship now over in john chapter 6 Remember the time when many people leave the Lord at the end of John chapter 6? These are hard sayings. And Peter says, thou hast the words of eternal life. Well, in, in John chapter 6, there was, there was a multitude who left following the Lord. But here, it seems that Joseph persisted. He was a, a learner of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, a, a follower of his teaching. But there is a caveat, secretly for fear of the Jews. It's encouraging. To know that we see a man honoured in the word of God and yet there is a recognition that he was troubled with the fear of man. There are, there are good believers who are troubled by the fear of man. John Calvin makes this point. He says this, as this fear is contrasted with the holy boldness which the spirit of the Lord wrought in the heart of Joseph, there is a reason to believe that it was not free from blame. You get the point? He's, we're going to see in Luke's gospel that his action is one of boldness, not secret fear, but boldness. And so Calvin's making the point, well, that surely brings some censure against his previous fear. Right. It's understandable. Again, we should be careful how we judge people in the biblical narratives. Remember the, uh, the parents of the blind man in John chapter 9, that they, they were feared of the Jews because they were told that if any man did confess that Jesus was Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue excommunicate that was a very serious thing and so we can understand to some degree the fear that joseph had but we we do see him as a genuine disciple indeed we read that he waited for the kingdom of god he waited for the kingdom of god now if you think back to mark's gospel and the beginning of christ's ministry he comes and he preaches the kingdom of god and he tells people to repent and believe the gospel so entrance into the kingdom was by faith turning from sin and faith in christ jesus but what is important this concept of waiting for the kingdom really could be said he was waiting for the messiah we read the psalm 130 the psalm 130 talks about those who know forgiveness and they're waiting for the lord they're watching for the lord more than they that watch for the morning and the idea is of the, of the burden that people have for the coming of Christ. They're like Anna and Simeon in the temple at the time of Christ's birth. These are waiting for the kingdom. But this man, Joseph, he is convinced as he waits for Messiah, he is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. That this man, Jesus, is the Christ. And so he's, he's got this trust in Christ Jesus. Hence, 
We see his prominence in a gospel that sets out to prove that Jesus was the Christ. We're also told in Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel 23 verse 50, that he was a good man and a just. We read that. He's a good man. God's at work in him. There is none good, no, not one. But by God's grace, God makes sinners good. None righteous. But God makes this man a just man. It's a, an Old Testament term for a righteous man. He, he, was, he was upright in his ways, walking in the fear of God. This is something regarding the, the life and the testimony of Joseph at this time. Now, keep that in mind and then put your eyes back to Mark chapter 15 and note what it says regarding him in verse number 43. This man which waited for the kingdom of God came and went in boldly unto Pilate. We read about his boldness, his courage and his faithfulness. Now this boldness is remarkable for several reasons. Undoubtedly, it is remarkable regarding his position as a councillor, a member of the Sanhedrin Council. That's incredible. Like the centurion, he stands against the crowd. This is not a common man, so to speak. It is a man of high rank. And yes, undoubtedly that rank allows him to approach Pilate. God is working all of these things together perfectly. That such a man as Joseph would have the right to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Christ. But his position, whilst ordained of God, is itself a reason for, for the surprising nature of his boldness. Some sense of superiority could have excused him from such an, an unpopular task. It's also worth noting that he was a rich man. We know that from the other accounts. He was a, a man of, of means, a man of wealth. Now, again, Calvin makes the point that rich men are slow to expose themselves to the contempt of the people. Now, that may or may not be true, but you can certainly see an argument whereby this man, with all of his wealth and prominence, would not have been going to get a, a, a criminal off the cross. It's also it's worth noting his boldness stands in contrast to his prior fear, as we have seen. Once he was fearful... Now he's acting in a way expressly designed to provoke the anger and the hostility of an entire nation. This, this is a remarkable act of boldness that should not be ignored. So we've thought about his, his biography, a little bit about his beliefs, his boldness, and, and finally think about his benevolence. There's a measure of generosity here that is really quite profound. It's a new sepulchre. There is much precious ointment used. We know from John 19, they, they bought myrrhs and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. We're told in our account here in Mark 15, he bought fine linen. This is why I'm saying to you, there's a, there's a transition here. The Lord has received nothing but ignominy in the cross. But now God has determined that his burial should be honourable. And the money expended by Nicodemus and Joseph was very, very great. Many would have said that was a wasteful use of money. Like the woman with the alabaster ointment. Oh, what are you wasting that money on the Lord for? But here we see Nicodemus and Joseph there. They're being used of God to give a profound honour upon the Saviour and his body. So we see, we see this man Joseph. Uh, and it is, my, it is my contention to you today 
and that he has been prepared for this task. This is a man prepared by God to do a task of God's appointment. He's the right man in the right place. And in order for this man to be in the right place, it was necessary for him to be born again of the Spirit of God. That's the starting point, isn't it, of all of this? That by God's grace he had been born again. No man, no man can trust in Christ unless they're born again. No man can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God. We, we understand that those who receive Christ, John chapter 1, those who receive the Lord, who are the sons of God, have been born of God. God is able to save the seemingly impossible. Think of this man. What is he? He's rich. How hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Here's a rich man waiting for the kingdom. And not only is he rich, he's religious. A rich religious man. What hope is there for such? Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. And so we see in this righteous man, this religious man, this rich man, we see, well, how can he ever be saved? Oh, the power of God can save, can save any. God is able to save the seemingly impossible. Can I just pause for a second and perhaps ask you, do you have people in your life and you wonder? How can they ever be saved? It seems so impossible. It seems so unlikely. Well, I tell you, the God that saved Joseph is able to save Save others who are seemingly impossible to reach. You see, by God's grace, this man is born again. And he's given a new heart, a new spirit. And in that new heart and that new spirit, there is a love for Christ. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. He, he, knows, he knows Christ as a saviour. He's come to love Christ. And love conquers the fear of man. Now, we, we can read... We can read of Joseph's fear and we can read of his timidity and we can excuse our own weakness or we can criticize him for his weakness. But we should see the background of his fear and then contrast that with the boldness he has for Christ and see what the power of God can do in our hearts, enabling us to do bold things for Christ Jesus. You see, when we are captivated by the love of Christ, we will use our resources for the Saviour. We will gladly sacrifice self and stuff for the glory of Christ's name. We will not be hesitant when it comes to making much of our Saviour. We will gladly, we will gladly sacrifice ourselves for his honour. This is what the grace of God does. And I believe that God has been working in this man, Joseph, in such a way that the Lord's burial will serve as this hinge between the humiliation of Christ and his exaltation. And we should be encouraged. Who knows what the Lord is doing in our midst? Who he is preparing? Who he's working in? Somebody? Some people? They have a work to do for God. And even now God is working in their hearts. Oh, we praise God for his providence. So that's something regarding the, the history of this burial and the preparation of Joseph for that end. And let's think about the theology then, secondly. What, 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 what about the theology of this burial? Well, as the history gives an illustration of sacrificial service, so the theology demonstrates the sovereign purpose of God. Now, we suffer, we suffer here from an affliction that is often the malady of a well-taught people. 
we read this narrative, we've, we've read it countless times, I'm sure most of you have, and you tend to take the story for granted. But this event, again, is unlikely. Crucified criminals are not ordinarily afforded this honour and this dignity. And the transition is so stark in the text. We see oppression. We see injustice. We see hostility. We see agony. We see pain. And then we come to see the great dignity of the Lord. We see his triumph. It is finished. But he still hangs bruised and battered on the cross. The commentator Alexander says this. The insults of the soldiers and the rabble and the rulers are now followed by the tenderest affections of refined and tender friendship. The scourge, the buffet and the spittle by delicate perfumes and spices. The mock robe and the thorny crown by pure white linen and a tomb where no corpse had rested. Do you see that contrast? What a stark transition it is. From all the hatred of the rabble to now the tenderness of being taken from the cross by a friend, by one who loved him and followed him. It is incredible what God is doing. And this burial is not a spontaneous act of circumstance. It's not a case of Joseph says to himself, well, I've got a nearby grave just prepared. It's, it's convenient for Christ to use. No, we should, we should see here the sovereign, mighty hand of God. God preparing his man. God moving, giving a man a love for Christ. God even preparing this new grave, never before used. Because God has been directing and preparing history. And if that is so, we must ask the question, why? Why is this so important? Why is the burial of Christ such an important event in human history? Well, I have three reasons. First of all, the Lord's burial is necessary to show the fact of his death. To show the fact of his death. Look at verse number 43. Joseph goes and he craves the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. It matters. Pilate's not going to allow the body to be taken down before ensuring that he actually was dead. And so he calls for the centurion. And this, if I can put it this way, this death expert, this executioner par excellence, determines that Jesus was indeed dead. When he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. Knows what? He knows that he's dead. Truly dead. Actually dead. You see, the Lord's death, it was a real death. His real human soul goes to the Father. Remember the doctrine of Christ's person? One person, but two natures. Very God and very man. And in his manhood, he possessed a true body and a reasonable soul. And in his death, there is a separation of body and soul. The body is buried, but the soul goes to the Father when he turns paradise to the other thief and the thief on the cross. There is a real burial. And that body, that body that is a real human body, is taken from the cross and buried. 
This is not a phantom pretended death. You know how, how often people say that, well, the reason for the Lord's resurrection is he swooned on the cross and then revived in the cool of the tomb. No, he was very dead. Truly dead. He actually died. And you know and I know that anything less would not be redemptive. He died receiving the wages of sin. And the wage of sin is death, not near death. And his death shows that he truly received the punishment for sin. And the process of his burial is the seal in human history. This man truly died for your sins. The guilty one dies. The Lord did not die for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. Those sins that are reckoned unto his account, charged to him, imputed to him. And so when you read of his burial... You can be assured that when you trust in Christ, in light of his burial, you can be sure that he truly took your sins. He actually paid the price of your sins. His death and burial, it takes the sting out of our death and burial. Don't we know that he tasted death for every man? Hebrews chapter 2. Don't we know that through death he destroyed him, that the power of death, that is the devil? We know that through death, he was able to deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Don't we understand that when Christ dies, he delivers us from the fear of death? Death holds no fear to those for whom Christ has died. We know that when we die, we go to be with Christ because his death paid the price for all of our sins. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans 5 verse 10. We were reconciled by the death of his son. The burial is a confirmation to your soul today. That when you trust in Christ, your sins are dealt with. Every single sin was meted upon Christ. And he paid the price in full. He truly died. And the burial proves that. And you need fear no death today. Perhaps to someone in the meeting. And right now, you've got to be honest. You suffer from the fear of death. You're apprehensive regarding your latter day. And you're conscious of the fact that you know you're not right with God. And you believe in God. And you believe, you believe what the Bible says. It's appointed unto man once to die. And then judgment. And you come, you come to church week by week. And you are very, very aware that if you're to face the judgment of God, you're undone. And death holds great fear for you. Well, I encourage you, look to the tomb of Christ and see one who truly died, that you might know freedom from the fear of death. Oh, be encouraged. Seek Christ today. The Lord's burial, it shows us the fact of his death. Secondly, the Lord's burial, it is necessary for the fulfillment of all scripture. The Lord's burial is part of the Old Testament prophecy. Now, the obvious reference, of course, is Isaiah 53 and the verse number nine. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. We, we know that one. But the Lord's burial fulfills more than just that prophecy. It fulfills several of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices. Let me show you just one. It's back in Numbers chapter 19. Turn back, please, to Numbers 19. 
Numbers chapter 19, we have the account of the death or the sacrifice of the red heifer. And the red heifer was given to uh, be a sacrifice whereby those who had been in contact with death could know cleansing from that contact. And you contact death and you're unclean. Ceremony unclean. You're not allowed in the presence of God. And so there's a sacrifice instituted by God. The, the death, the sacrifice of the red heifer. And you'll see in Numbers 19 and the verse number 9. And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them without the camp in a clean place. And that reference to a clean place outside the camp is also used in other portions, the Vegas chapter 4 and chapter 6 regarding sacrifice. And what it, what it required was that the Lord's sepulchre had not been corrupted by death. That was important. The Lord's burial was subsequent to him paying all the price. There must be no defilement of the Lord's body in that regard. And so he is buried in a new tomb in which there had been no other body. No contact with death. It was a clean place. All of these scriptures are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Numbers 19, Leviticus chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 53. Why would you look for any other saviour? All the details regarding Christ's life, all the details regarding Jesus, point to him being the Christ. The only saviour of sinners, the servant of Jehovah. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord hath laid in him the iniquity of us all. Here is your Christ. Here is your saviour today. Why would you search elsewhere? The Lord God said, there will indeed be a saviour, a servant, a sacrifice. And in the gospel we see time and time again, evidence upon evidence, Jesus is the Christ. Put your trust in him and be saved today. The Lord's burial shows us again the fulfillment of the scriptures. And thirdly and finally, and this one is perhaps less thought about. The Lord's burial is necessary for the freedom of the saint. Turn to Romans chapter 6 please. Romans chapter 6. The Lord's burial is necessary for the freedom of the saints. Romans 6, Paul is arguing about the necessity and indeed the inevitability of sanctification. If you know Romans at all, you know Romans chapter 1 through 5 gives us an exposition of the nature of justification. We're accepted, our sins are forgiven, we're, we're pardoned, we're accepted through Christ's righteousness. And the question comes in chapter 6, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And if Christ's work covers all of our sins, why would we bother living a holy life? Why is it necessary? Well, such thinking, of course, is very foreign to the word of God. And Paul gives us many arguments, but here he gives the argument regarding Christ and our union with Christ. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 3, know ye not? That so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
you see here that all who are in Christ Jesus are in union with him in light of all that occurs on Calvary. He dies, he is buried, and he rises again. The union that the believer has in Christ Jesus is a union with him in his burial. So that as he dies and is buried, so that as Christ rises to news of life, so also do we. Can't you have there verse number six? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Here's a theology of sanctification. That in union with Christ we die in him. And as we are raised, so by the Spirit of God we are raised to newness of life. With the freedom to delight in the law of God. With the freedom to do the will of God. Oh, not perfectly. You get to Romans 7 later on. But in Romans 6 you see that the believer who is in union with Christ, the power of sin is broken. We don't need to live under his dominion. Therefore, reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Oh, there's freedom in the gospel. Christ was buried and he rose again that we might know, we might know life in him and through him. Resurrection of Christ is the securing of our lives that we might know him, says Paul, and the power of his resurrection. And so the burial serves as an encouragement to the believer. You're dead in sin. Sin no longer reigns over you. You know freedom. You know, we all know people in this life. And they think they're free, but they're bound to sin. They can't help themselves sinning and keep on sinning. They don't know anything about true freedom. For freedom is found in union with Christ. Putting our trust in him. And as we trust in him, so we are raised to newness of life. That we can walk in the happiness of obeying the will of God. That is the great assurance of the child of God. And it is the blessing that is offered to us in the gospel today. And so we think of this matter. You wonder why did Paul say, and he was buried? Do you think why this is important? Oh, it's important for these reasons. And that we'd worship Christ today and give him all the glory as he has offered to us in the gospel. May God use his word in your hearts today for his name's sake. And may God be pleased to bless you all in the rest of this Sabbath day. We're, we're going to sing again as we draw our meeting to a close. We're going to sing the 100th Psalm, the 100th Psalm, and our brother Alan will come and get that for us now. 100th Psalm, and after we sing, we'll keep, we'll keep standing after the close of the Psalm, and we'll close in a word of prayer.
Amen. Let's pray. Eternal God, we pray that you'd bless this congregation, bless the word in their hearing, help them, O Lord, to just delight in all that Christ is. The gospel will be our joy today. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and, and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen and amen.